All right, book of Jeremiah, book of Jeremiah. Now, I've been trying to do everything as standalone uh, messages, but obviously we're going to have, there's going to be, we're going to carry over since we did not finish in the last hour what we needed to finish. So we're just going to have to do it that way. Hopefully that will be okay. And uh, we'll try to make this all work. Um, how, yeah, this is one of those times where we ended the last hour what I probably should have done is broken it down just realizing it was going to take two hours to do it, but I didn't, and so now I'm kind of in this weird place. But we'll, we'll make it all work. All right, the book of Jeremiah is what we've been working on uh, for the summer of 2023. Uh, for those participating in the Bible study exercise, they were supposed to read Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 20, all the way to the end of chapter 6, because the Bible study guide... Uh, wants us actually working on chapter 7 today. We're a long ways away from chapter 7. We have been uh, working on uh, basically, you know, chapters 1 and 2. We started getting a little bit into chapter 3, and we've got a lot of work still to do because there's a lot of important things to cover between uh, chapter 2 and chapter 6. But I felt that it was time to uh, to have kind of a a hermeneutics lesson because if you've been reading the book of Jeremiah, chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 4, chapter 5, chapter 6, you'll realize you're going to find some language that can be very confounding and confusing to people because it uses a lot of figurative language where it uses things like young lions, but it's not referring to lions. The young lions probably refer to Assyria. It's using uh, things like the children of, but it's really referring to the nation of. It can be uh, referring to an almond tree, but it's not actually an almond tree that you're supposed to understand. It's referring to a seething pot, but it's not actually a seething pot. And we know this, this is figurative figurative language. Well, a lot of Christians read the Bible, they think they, they, they claim, they act like that they can understand it, but when you start asking them basic rules and ideas about figurative language, they demonstrate relatively quickly they don't even understand the basic rules and how to deal with figurative language. So we, first of all, in the first hour, we looked at three factors that must be considered when dealing with figurative language. Those three factors were genre, subject, and usage. Not going to go back and explain each one. Genre, subject, and usage. Then we started talking about the types of figurative language, and we gave biblical examples for every single one of them. The first type of figurative language was a simile. A simile. A simile is a comparison with something that is actually very different, and it uses what kinds of words? As or like. It was as this or like this. This shows up in Matthew where it says wise as a serpent, harmless as a dove. That's a simile. All right. Then we talked about metaphor. A metaphor is a comparison like a simile, but what words does it not use? Like, like, or as, right? In fact, it will say something like the leaven of the Pharisees doesn't say like or as, but that's clearly a metaphor because we're not actually talking about the actual leaven or yeast of the Pharisees, right? Okay. Or if it says, you serpents, that's not actual serpents, it's a metaphor, right? All right. Then we talked about an idiom. An idiom is a fixed expression with a distinctively sense, typically not obvious from the words themselves, often rooted in metaphor, and what's a good example of an idiom? Kick the bucket. Okay? They didn't actually kick the bucket. It's an idiom, right? Yeah. 
And so we found in the Bible, the one, their hearts melted. Their hearts did not really melt. All right. It's an idiom. Okay. Then we, next we looked at euphemism. I always want to put an in there. Euphemism. And a euphemism is an idiom used to refer indirectly and more politely or delicately to someone or something. It's a euphemism, right? So you're going to refer to something, but you want to do it in a more delicate way. So you'll say, I'm going to the men's room versus I'm going to the toilet, right? That's a euphemism. And then in the Bible, there's a, uh, the euphemisms are used typically to refer to the physical relations between two people. It will use it in a euphemism like, she did not know a man, or he knew his wife, all right? That's a euphemism for, obviously, physical relations, all right? We talked about that. Then we talked about irony and sarcasm. Irony and sarcasm. Language that says the opposite of what is meant for effect. Irony tends to be what? Witty and subtle. And sarcasm tends to be more biting, right? More biting. And a lot of times people don't get irony and sarcasm. I love irony and sarcasm. And sometimes you say it and you'll be like, they took that literally. Okay. Oh boy. All right. right? Like you can use sarcasm when someone gives me an answer. And I'm like, yeah, <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. I, I don't really mean yeah, right. I'm being sarcastic. I, right. It's, it's, Everybody understand that? Now, that's in the Bible. And if you don't understand the irony and sarcasm, you're going to completely misinterpret the entire text. And so we, we briefly mentioned some of the texts, like in 1 Corinthians 4. You have already become rich. You have become kings without us. That's, that's not, that's, <laughs> that's irony, that's sarcasm. Or in 2 Samuel how the king of Israel distinguished himself today. And one of the things that makes it hard in the Bible to detect irony and sarcasm is what? We didn't talk about this in the first hour. What makes it so hard to detect irony and sarcasm in the Bible? Okay. There you go. Very true. Okay, that's so true. When you're just reading it on a page, you, you don't know what inflection is. Usually if I'm using irony or sarcasm, you pick up from the inflection in my voice how I'm using it. Like, I hope you do. I mean, sometimes you don't, but I mean, sometimes you do, right? It's how I say it, right? Like, if, if you're talking to your kids, right? If you're talking to Eli and he's like, yeah, right. Does he mean like he agrees or he's like, yeah, right. He's like, what? Whatever. Like, I, whatever you say. I don't care. I, like, I don't think you're actually right. Right? Right? Okay. Everybody's looking. I'm sorry not to get you in trouble for it, but okay. <laughs> but everyone gets the idea, right? When your wife's griping at you, you're like, yeah, okay. You're right. You're right. You're right. Do you really mean they're right? Like, you don't really mean they're right, right? Right? Okay, Jim's like, no, go back to Eli. Go back to Eli, okay? But it's true, right? I mean, we do that, right? That's, that's sarcasm. That's, that's irony. That's, and, and, and it's hard to pick up in the text because remember in the Bible, sometimes within a small 
space. You may go from a, a very literal historical narrative to biting sarcasm. And so you've got to be able to figure that out or you're going to misinterpret it. Then you have hyperbole, right? Hyperbole, which is exaggerated or overstated language to make a point. Now, the only problem is, if well, like me, I love sarcasm, but I'll use hyperbole to be sarcastic, which can really lead to lots of confusion, right? right does that make sense? So the, the example they use of hyperbole was a ton of money. Well, nobody actually weighed their money to go, oh, it's, it, it weighed an actual ton. Nobody weighs their money, right? I mean, if you're weighing your money, we need to talk because obviously you've got a lot of it. And second, that, you, that why are you weighing it, right? Who cares how much it weighs? What do you care? How much it's worth, okay? But, but if you say you have a ton of money, that's hyperbole. Now, but I could do it sarcastically, right? If a little kid came up to me and like, look at the money that they gave me. I'm like, oh, you got a ton of money there, right? I'm not only being hyperbolic, I'm being sarcastic, right? Okay, does that make sense? Right? What, but again, if, in the Bible, if you don't understand that, you're going to just be like, <laughs> you're like, what are you doing? How are you interpreting it that way? Oh, I, yeah. You're, yeah, I, there's, I, yeah. You're using all kinds of things: hyperbole, sarcasm, maybe being ironic. You're doing all kinds of things going on with it. Okay, and and you've got to note that. So in the Bible, when they say the whole city came out, it wasn't the whole city, everyone. That's hyperbolic to prove what a large group showed up right that's all it means um if your right eye trips you up pluck it out that's hyperbole right that's not telling you to literally do what to rip out your eye it's not okay so that's hyperbole everybody understand that all right now we've got only got a few left here but we'll we'll see you know this is gonna we'll just see What's uh, the next one? So, so let's go through those again. What's the first type of figurative language? A simile. Second, metaphor. Third, idiom. Fourth, euphemism. Next, irony and sarcasm. And next, hyperbole. And all of you now are experts. What, am I being sarcastic? Okay, all right. Am I being sarcastic? Am I exaggerating? Well, what am I doing there? Okay, all right. Next. The next one is spelled M-A-X-I-M. What's this one? A maxim. What's a maxim? Okay, well, this is how they define a maxim. A non-metaphorical statement succinctly expressing a general truth or principle. It's a non-metaphorical statement that in a succinct way expresses a general truth. Honesty is the best policy. That's non-metaphorical. It's succinct. And what is it trying to do? Express a general truth, a general principle. Now, but just note, I could say honesty is the best policy and I could be doing what? I could be sarcastic, right? I could be sarcastic. I could say it in a sarcastic way, yes? So that's why you've always, like, you've, 
These are just like basic things you have to be able to figure out. And it's just bizarre how people, so like some people are just wired to pick this stuff up and some people don't. Now, it's one thing if you read a novel or you don't get it in a movie, you don't get it in a novel, or you definitely don't get it in reading poetry. If you're just, you lack those skills, that's one thing. The only problem is if you lack those skills, that's dangerous when what happens? When you read the Bible and you can't pick it up because that's going to lead to some messed up stuff. So just for those, again, participating in the Bible study exercise, your assignment this week is at least to go through, you really need to just work on Jeremiah probably 1 through 12, and you need to find all the similes, all the metaphors, all the idioms, all the euphemisms, all the irony and sarcasm, all the hyperbole, and then you need to find the maxims. You need to find it. Again, non-metaphorical statements succinctly expressing a general truth or principle. Where would we see this played out constantly in the Bible? Proverbs. And what do we have a tendency to do all the time with Proverbs? We take it in a very literal way, like it's a definitive promise. No, it's a general principle. Okay, that people do this all the time with the Proverbs. Very literal way sometimes, right? Okay, for example, uh, spare the rod, spoil the child. Some people take that in a very literal way, like a literal rod. Well, a rod doesn't always mean of something, an instrument to hit. A rod can be something just to guide. It can just be something to, it could be, if you don't guide your child, if you don't lead your child, you can, like, that, that doesn't always mean, but it's taken mean, meaning to what? Beat the child. It doesn't always mean that. Like, look up how the rod is used throughout the Bible. Right? What does it say? It's Psalm 23. Does it mention the rod in Psalm 23? Thy rod and thy staff comfort me. Does that mean you're comforted by being beat? No, the rod is what? It's kind of a guiding tool, right? It doesn't always mean to, like, we take it in a very, a very, very literal way sometimes. It's like because we're, we're, we're forgetting the genre that we're looking at, right? We're forgetting, and, and we can just look at other examples where the rod was a sign of comfort or a sign of guidance or a sign of, like, I've talked about that on the podcast, and anytime I do, people lose their minds, but it's just like, you got to know. So, for example, let me give you uh, two Proverbs. Pride before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall, Proverbs 16, 18. That's a non-metaphorical metaphorical statement simply expressing what? A general truth or principle. Another one, better is open rebuke than concealed love, Proverbs 27, 5. That's a, it's a general truth or principle. But some people can take that in a way and they'll try to carry it out in every situation. They're like, no. It not that's not the time now for that, okay? It's a general principle. Does that make sense? So you need to see if there is any maxims in the book of Jeremiah where it's a non-metaphorical statement ex- expressing a general truth or principle, right? Next, what's the next one? A proverb itself, a proverb. It's typically, now, now this is important. A proverb is typically metaphorical statement expressing in a very picturesque way a general truth. So a maxim is a non-metaphorical statement that succinctly expresses a general truth 
where a proverb is typically metaphorical and expresses in a picturesque way a general truth. All right, a lot of people confuse that. All right, so make sure we got that. What's a maxim? A non-metaphorical statement succinctly expressing a general truth. What is a proverb? A metaphorical statement expressing in a picturesque way a general truth. I want to make sure we have those down, so we'll stay here all day until everybody can say it with me, right? What's a maxim? Non-metaphorical statement succinctly expressing a general truth. What is a proverb? A metaphorical statement expressing in a picturesque way a general truth. The early bird gets the worm. Right, that's a pro- very good. It's a proverb. It's a metaphorical statement, right? Expressing a general truth. Does the early bird always get the worm? No, right? Okay, all right. So um, I'll give you some examples. Drink water from your own cistern and fresh water from your own well. That's Proverbs 5.15. That's metaphorical all day long, right? Is he talking about uh, an actual water, an actual actual cistern? Well, you, you guys think he's not, is he? Right? I mean, do, do I need to go into detail what he's referring to here? <laughs> okay. All right. Okay. Well, so Jeremiah does the same thing, but we're talking Proverbs, right? Does everybody know? Proverbs, does anybody need ever grab your Bibles? Just look at Proverbs five and see if you can figure it out without my help. Proverbs five. Starting, you can look at the verses before or after 15, see if you can figure out. What does he mean by water and cistern? Drink water from your own cistern and fresh water from your own well. Is this telling you where to get your water from? 5.15. Do I need help? I hear Silence. Okay, all right, well, so because your Bible's telling you what it means. Okay, that's what the metaphor is. Okay, that's what the metaphor is. Okay, all right, all right, that's what the metaphor is. So you got to be able to understand that's a metaphorical, it's a proverb, but it's metaphor. Everybody understand the metaphor? I still keep hearing silence. Does everyone understand the metaphor? Okay. All right, I'm going to just assume you do. I, I, don't, I, I don't hope I don't have to go into great detail to express that to you, right? Right? Well, Proverbs don't always have a good context, but yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah, okay. <laughs> right. But like, for the lips of a strange woman drop as a honeycomb and her mouth is smoother than oil, but her end is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. I mean, all of that is metaphor all day long, but you're getting the idea, right? Her feet go down to death. Her steps take uh, hold on hell, lest thou shouldest ponder the path. I mean, you see where it's going? Okay, right. I mean, it's, it's referring to being faithful, Yes. Drank water from your own cistern and fresh water from your own well. That's a metaphor, but it's telling you to do what? All right, be faithful. Everybody got that? Okay. And then 
A man reaps what he sows, Galatians 6, 7. A man reaps what he sows. Everybody see that? That's what? That's a, a proverb statement. And it's metaphorical, right? Is it talking about reaping and sowing of actual something you're planting? No, that's the picture, right? Remember, it's a, a metaphorical statement expressing in a picturesque way a general truth. It's a proverb. So everyone knows the difference between a maxim and a proverb. A maxim is a non-metaphorical statement expressing in a very succinct way a general truth or principle. A proverb is a metaphorical statement expressing in a picturesque way a general truth. Everybody got that? Yes? Okay. All right. I'm going to go that silence means go, that it's all great. Okay. Next, parable. Parable. What's a parable? All right. Well, he did use parables. It's a story functioning as an extended simile, typically illustrating a central point. It's a story functioning as an extended simile. All right, what's a simile? It's a comparison with something that is actually very different using as or like, right? So a parable is an extended simile. And it, it illustrates, please note, a central point. A central point. What's one of the major problems with the way pastors and churches handle parables? They go through the parable like this represents this, this represents this, this represents this, this represents this. And at some point you're like, what is happening here? What is happening? Because what you need to do is the, the, the parable as an extended simile, you just got to figure out what is the central point. Because sometimes if you take those parables and you try to break it all down, you end up a heretic. You'll end up a complete, like, it'll be crazy. So, for example, the lost sheep the lost sheep and the lost coin in Luke 15, 3 through 10. Parables illustrating God's rejoicing over the lost who are found. Right? I mean, that's, that should be able to get the main name point. So again, what do you have to do in a parable? Don't get caught up in the details. Step back and go, what is the point? What's the general point? Right? That's a proverb. So what do we have here? We have a simile. We have a metaphor. We have an idiom, we have euphemism, we have irony and sarcasm, we have hyperbole, we have a maxim, we have a proverb, we have a parable. We got two more. What's next? We only got two left. We're at the, we're at the end. Everyone has to be able to get one of these. Ne next one starts with an A. L. Allegory, very good, allegory. All right, come on. What's, what's a famous allegory? You had to read it in school, at least back when you read books. Oh, come on. You have to go with something Christian. Okay, Animal Farm. Does everybody remember that? You didn't have to read Animal Farm? Okay, animal. Nobody read Animal Farm. Nobody. 
<laughs> okay, not that. Okay. Did, did anybody, nobody read Animal Farm? Okay, all right, well. Okay, that's where the different, the, the different animals represent citizens in different positions in a state. It's, it's, it's animals, but the animals represent, okay, okay. So some of you remember that. Okay, all right. Uh, but an allegory is a story based on an extended metaphor in which various elements of a story correspond to various realities. An allegory is a story based on an extended metaphor. So a parable is an extended what? Simile, and an allegory is an extended metaphor in which various elements of a story correspond to various realities. Right? So you're, you're showing this, but this represents this. This is what drives me crazy when people can't figure that out in movies. It's like, what are you talking about? That rep- if the whole movie represented this, like, what did you not get? And I lose my mind, and then I'm like, never mind. I'm never watching another movie with another human being because it drives me crazy when people don't do that. Or even in lyrics and music. It's like, no, that's not what... It represents this. What are you doing, right? Well, the same thing... This is very important because you've got to first determine if it's an allegory. And if it's an allegory, then what do you have to figure out? You've got to figure out which each element corresponds to which reality, right? You gotta f- then it becomes really a lot of work, yes? Now, now you're not just focusing on the central part, the central message. What are you focusing on? Each element. And you've got to go, this represents this. This represents this. This represents it. That's where allegorical approach to scripture can get insane. When we've read the church fathers, it doesn't know. Three miles represents three days in the tomb. Who knows? A donkey represents this. Road represents this. Water represents this. Sky re- Like, they'll take anything. It can be Abraham doing just the most basic thing, and it all represents this. When, when oh, when Abraham was trying to find a wife for his, his uh, then, oh, this represents this, and this represents God, and this represents the Holy Spirit, and it's just like, and people will eat that stuff up. You preach that, people are like, oh, wow, I've never seen that before. I know why you've never seen that before. Because it's not there, okay? You're making it up. Because you have to then, you have to first prove that it's what? First, you have to prove it's an allegory. And then secondly, who gets to determine what the elements represent? If the scripture doesn't tell you, where do you get, where, who gets to make the determination? The imagination of the interpreter. That's why allegorical approach scares me to death, all right? But there are times where there's allegory. Look at Isaiah 5. Isaiah 5. See if you can pick up the allegory. An allegory is what? An extended what? Metaphor, where the elements correspond to various realities, right? Everybody remember that? Look at Isaiah 5. Tell me what you see. So I'll start in verse 1. You look at verse 1 through 7.
Now I will sing to I will sing to my well beloved a song of my beloved touching his vineyard. My beloved hath the vineyard and a very fruitful hill, and he fenced it and gathered out. Who's the he? Who's the he? Yeah, but it's got to represent something unless you're just taking this in a very literal way. Are you taking it in a very literal way? All right, are we going to say the he there is God? Who's the vineyard or who's the vine? The vineyard. Who's the, uh, who's the vineyard? All right, the vineyard is Israel, and God is the one who planted it and took care of it, right? All right, it's an extended what? What is this? It's an extended metaphor making it an allegory, and you've got to figure out who the he is and who the vineyard is now, in that case, that's, I mean, Isaiah 5 is like, that's the, the kids could do that in Sunday school. Anybody can figure that one out. That one's simple, right? But you, you catch on really quick that it's a metaphor or that it's an allegory, right? You catch on that it's an extended metaphor. Is it not clear to you or, or, or not? I hope it's clear, okay? It, I think to me it's, it's relatively clear, all right? Um, and then go to John 15. I'm the vine, you are the branches, once again. And it goes on for, what, six verses, does it not? John 15, I think it's six verses, or it may even go further. Is it six verses, seven verses? John 15, it goes on for a while, does it not? All right, making it what? And an extended metaphor, right? If it's an extended metaphor, then what do we call it? An allegory. And if it's an allegory, you do realize where the problems began once it becomes an allegory. Because now I have to figure out the parts and the reality it's pointing to. And that, that can be... Look, John 15, you know, I wish it wasn't that. I wish it was a parable. If it was a parable, then all I need to do is just figure out the main point. But when you start trying to break down the individual parts there, it raises questions about can someone lose their salvation? And like I've started all kinds of crazy things starts coming into play in John 15. So an allegory creates bigger problems because you have to start figuring out what? What the various elements of the story correspond to. That becomes the problem. So, again, for those working on Jeremiah this summer, you need to go through the book of Jeremiah. Right now, just mainly focus on Jeremiah. Just just start working on it. Go find all the similes, the metaphors, the idioms, the euphemisms, the irony and sarcasm, the hyperbole, the maxims, the proverbs, the parables, and the allegories. And the allegories needs to be an extended metaphor. Right? So far, so good. And then last, but not least. What do you think the next one is? Starts with a P. P P-E-R. 
personification. Look at that. Look at that. And, I, and what I love about this is, where, where, where did you learn about personification? Where? School. Imagine that. Imagine, remember what Augustine said? Where do you learn to uh, interpret the Bible? Your basic rules of learning how to read. What blows my mind is sometimes someone who's never had any theological or, or uh, theological training will know the rules and how to read the Bible better than Christians who've been saved for 20 years. I'm telling you, the people who can understand that, that's why sometimes an atheist can understand a Bible better than a Christian because they actually read, okay? You got to read. You, you got to know the rules of reading. The, 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 it, it's, it, sometimes it drives me crazy, but I, like if you don't like to read, you really have the wrong religion because our God put his revelation in a written form meaning the only way it can be understood is through the rules of reading does that make sense so if i give you animal farm or if i give you any just name any famous book right if i give you shakespeare if i give you anything and you can't figure it out but then you come to the bible like watch me i'll tell you what it means um, that's insanity to me. That's insanity. You got to know how to read. You got to be able to how to figure it out. The Bible is the same. That's how come, so Christians to overcome that problem, what have Christians come up with to overcome that problem? God gives us the answer. God gives me the understanding. God helps me understand it. God will lead me into all truth. Because now you don't have to know how to do what? You don't have to know how to read. And then you can just say the most ridiculous things in your sermons or in Sunday school and then, or, or the most ridiculous things on social media and Christians will be like, you, and then Christians, and then do not Christians act arrogant? What do Christians always say about an unbeliever who argues with them about scripture? Christians, it's their go-to ace up to sleep. You can't understand it because it's the word of God and only the spirit gives understanding. What an arrogant, condescending Bunch of garbage. Because Christians don't even understand it. So stop acting like you have some insight because you are a Christian and they're not a Christian so you understand it better than them. No, the difference is the not unbeliever may not accept it, but they can understand it. They may not understand the spiritual implications of it, but they can understand it because it contains what? Words, and how are words understood? The basic rules that we understand, all words. And anyone who's gone to school, guess what they've learned about? Similes, metaphors, idioms, euphemisms, irony and sarcasm, hyperbole, maxims, proverbs, parables, and allegories. Because you had to read literature, okay? And you had to be able to understand how this was being used. In fact, you may have even gone to a school, if depending on your teacher, where they gave you different parts or different excerpts of famous literature and you had to identify 
the literary device being used. And you give scripture, Christians the Bible and say, identify the literary device being used. And they're like, well, you know, I don't feel like God told me that. Yeah, God didn't tell you that because God's not speaking to you, okay? He's speaking to you through scripture and you've got to know how to read it. And, it, and that's why I love how Augustine handled it when Augustine was like, where do you learn to read? When you learned as a child, to, you learn how to understand scripture when you learned as a child to read. So if you grew up not learning how to read, then you're going to be a poor Bible student. So you have to go back and do what? Improve your reading ability, which will then improve. So what's personification? All right, they define it this way. Uh, speaking of an inanimate object, animal, as if they were persons, right? As if they were persons. Speaking of an inanimate object, animals, abstractions, as if they were persons. Okay, do what? The sun smiled, right. Yeah, I mean, Exactly. All right, so they give uh, Proverbs 8.12, wisdom, dwell with prudence. Wisdom is a virtue associated with prudence. Okay, maybe not as, as good. Uh, but you can go through, uh, this happens a lot of times. For example, in Proverbs, what's a personification that happens in Proverbs a lot? Wisdom is described as a woman. Wisdom is described as a woman. It's personified, right? Or it's described as a father. Correct? Right? So it's personified in that, in that kind of way. There, some of their examples are not the best. They really add more confusion than anything, so I won't go through them. But that's personification. So you need to go through Jeremiah and see if something is personification taking place. Now, is this always in an exact art? If I give this out to everyone, I will, I'll, I'll know it when I start getting the emails. Do you think, everyone's gonna, uh, you think everyone's going to agree that something is a simile? I think they're easier because you've got as and like, right? I, I, think, I think a simile, they should, but I guarantee you, I'll have some people going, it's a, all I have to do is go home today to a podcast and say, these four passages are similes, and I'll get someone who will email me and say, you don't know what you're talking about, All right? It's a, especially if they're Christians, because, you know, Christians are going to have to disagree with something, right? You know, you just say Jesus. I'm like, no, you're wrong, okay? Um, but uh, metaphor, I agree with you. Similes, everyone should get. Metaphor, mm, yeah, that's a little bit more difficult. An idiom is a, maybe even more difficult, Agreed? Yeah, especially if we don't understand the culture. Yeah, they can use they can use a phrase, and we're like, I missed it. Oh, there's a where where is a big debate about an idiom? Where's a big debate in the Bible? Really, it, this comes into way controversial. Remember when David's child died? What was said? Go find the story real quick. Find the story real quick. Find the story in the Bible. This one is one of the most controversial ones. This leads to World War III. Now, just find the story. We'll, we'll, we'll look at this. This one creates lots of, uh, man, you can, you can split a church with this one. I mean, well, you can split a church basically with anything. But 
see who finds it first. Well, I'm already looking at it, so if nobody can find it, I can just tell you. I can tell you this, it's in 2 Samuel. And I can tell you if you're in chapter 13, you went too far. Yeah, 2 Samuel 12, all right? And if you, uh, and if you, and I think it's in, um, well, remember he tells the parable of the lamb, right? He exposes David's sin, right? Then, uh, then David's repentance, correct? Okay. Then we have starting, I believe, in verse 18. And it came to pass on the seventh day that the child died and the servants of David feared to him that the child was dead. For they said, behold, while the child was yet alive, we spake unto him and he would not hearken unto your voice. How will he then vex himself if, if we tell him that his child is dead? But when David saw that his servants whispered, David perceived that the child was dead. And therefore David said unto his servants, Is the child dead? And they said, uh, uh, He is dead. Then David arose from the earth, washed, anointed himself, changed his apparel, came into the house of the Lord, and worshipped. And when he came to his own house, when he, uh, when he required, they set bread before him, and he did eat. Then said his servant unto him, What thing is this that thou hast done? Uh, thou didst fast and weep for the child while it was alive, but when the child was dead, thou didst rise and eat bread. And he said, While the child was yet alive, I fasted and wept, for I said, Who can tell whether God will be gracious to me, but the child, but th- that the child may live? But now he is dead. Wherefore should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me. That last phrase, I shall go to him and he shall not return to me. Most, some Christians pre- uh, preach that to mean what? That the child is in heaven. They take it in a very literal way. Others say it's a Hebrew idiom simply to mean what? The child died and one day I will die. Has nothing to do with heaven. Now, as soon as I say that, people will lose their minds because they will say, no, that proves children go to heaven. You're going to take that phrase to prove children go to heaven when they die? And I remember when we had this conversation, and what did you say? Well, then that would prove that someone can be saved apart from faith alone. Therefore, faith is not required to be saved. Just your age would be required to be saved, which would create major theological problems. Others, that's a Hebrew idiom, just to mean the child died and I will die. I, I I will die just like the child has died. Like, he can't come to me. One day I'll die. Doesn't mean the child is in heaven. Now, whether it's a Hebrew idiom or not, there will be lots of debate. But the fact, the only way to know if it's a Hebrew idiom is then you have to get into, no, this is a phrase that was typically used by that culture to express when someone had died. If it's an idiom, then guess what? We don't build a doctrine out of it. Now, personally, I believe even if it's not an idiom, I'm not going to build a doctrine out of that considering we claim what's required to be saved? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, how can then you have people being saved who don't believe in the Lord Jesus Christ? And then you say, well, if they don't know, then they can't believe, so therefore they're not held responsible, then we wouldn't want Anyone to know, like, you just end up with all kinds of theological problems. But that's an example of a possible idiom that can create major debate on how to interpret the Bible. All right, a euphemism. I haven't talked about that. 
Um, you need to find all the euphemisms. Irony and sarcasm. You got to know when the, the, uh, the writer is using irony. Look, God sometimes used sarcasm. Sometimes the writer is using irony and sarcasm. You got to figure it out. And if you can't figure it out, you're going to interpret it in all kinds of weird. Wouldn't it be weird to interpret a passage that's being sarcastic and you're taking it in a very literal way? And it's like, no, that's, that's not what's happening. What are you doing? That's not what's going on. You, know, you take it. Oh, that's a, that's a good promise for me. No, it's sarcastic. What are you doing? Does that make sense? Right? Hyperbole. You, you, can everyone understand the danger of interpreting hyperbole in a very literal way? That can be really scary in the Bible. Really scary in the Bible. Like, you, you've got to be very careful with that. Next, a maxim, non-metaphorical statement, succinctly expressing a general truth or principle. Right? A proverb is a metaphorical statement. Make sure we understand. A proverb is what? Metaphorical. A proverb is metaphorical. Man, I, I don't think, I think 99% of Christians don't understand that. All right, next, a parable is what? An extended simile. An allegory is an extended metaphor. And then personification is, yeah, I like, I like your definition better. Human quality is given to a non-human object, right? I think that's a better, it's, it's, it's speaking of it as a person. And that can have that can have you know important. Uh, for example, I'll just throw this out there. Go to the end of Proverbs. Just we'll end with this. I know I said that a minute ago and I lied, but that's okay. Want to make sure you get your money's worth. Okay, I know you're like, ah, well, just just cheat me, just just cheat me out. Right? Um, in Proverbs, I at least I personally believe. In Proverbs, it's easily, you can tell me if you agree. Can we agree that in Proverbs over and over and over, women is, uh, our woman is like, or wisdom is likened to a woman? Over and over and over. There's no question about it. She, wisdom, she walks in the streets, right? I mean, like, that's, it's, it's describing her as a woman, right? So when you get to the end of Proverbs, what do we have described here? We have the virtuous woman. And how is this almost always defined? As an act, this is the way a woman is supposed to be, right? If a young woman's going to get married, they'll give them our book, you know, and how to be the virtuous woman in Proverbs, right? And then all the women set out to do it. Does anyone ever accomplish it? No, they're condemned, condemned, condemned by it. But I've thrown out at least, this is simply a hypothesis. I'm not saying it's true. Is it possible that this virtuous woman is the personification of wisdom? That this is really, in a, in a picturesque way, describing wisdom itself. Who can find a virtuous woman for her price is far above rubies? The heart of her husband doth safely trust in her so that, she sh- so that he shall have no need of spoil. She shall do him good and not evil all the days of her life. I mean, this puts a lot of a, a pressure on a woman, right? If it's the personification of wisdom, what's the one thing that will guarantee these things? Wisdom would guarantee these things. I don't know if there's a woman on the face of the planet who can guarantee these things. Does that make sense? 
She will do him. She seeketh wool and flax and work willingly with her hands. She is like the merchant ship. She bringeth her food from afar. And it just seems like if you go through the book of Proverbs and look at every time wisdom is described, some of it is very similar. I'm not saying it works out perfectly. I've thrown out this hypothesis before. No, most, most people completely think it's ridiculous and don't agree with it. But I just like, um, sometimes you got to know if something is a personification. I'm not saying this makes it clear. I, I know that throughout Proverbs, the woman is used to describe what? Wisdom. I mean, over and over and over. There's no. So when I get to the end of the book, I just thought, is it possible that this woman is the personification of everything that comes in the 30 chapters before? Right? So that would have a great impact on how you interpret it, right? Right? Because the husband is the one pursuing the wisdom, right? Like over and over and over. Remember in Proverbs, she's the one walking in the street, right? Calling out for everyone to do what? Basically to get wisdom, to get her. Like over and over and over. Isn't that the whole thing in Proverbs? Get wisdom, get wisdom, pursue her, get her. She's in the streets calling for her. Again, it's not, I'm not saying it's perfect. I'm just saying that there's no question that 30 chapters of Proverbs personifies wisdom over and over and over and over and over again. Does it not? Yes? Okay. I hope everyone can see that. I, ho- I hope everyone can see that. You can see it early on in Proverbs. I think it's very, I think you can start seeing it. Where's the first time she, uh, the woman is personified or wisdom is personified as a woman? Um, look, look at this. Look at Proverbs 3.13. Happy is the man that findeth wisdom and that man that getteth understanding. For the merchandise of it is better than the merchandise of silver and the gain. Now look at it, verse 15. How is she described? She is more precious than rubies. Who's the she in Proverbs 3.15? Wisdom. She's described as a woman. And now please note, happy is the man that findeth what? The woman. Wisdom, right? The man that getteth understanding for the merchant. See, it's, does not that does describe Proverbs 31? Yeah, so uh, uh, look, look at what it says about her. Um, length of days is in her right hand, and in her hand, riches and honor. Does it not say that if you, that this woman, the virtuous woman, that it's always going to be great for you? Look, length of days is in her right hand. Her ways are ways of pleasantness, and all her paths are peace. She is a tree of life. The lay that, they that lay upon her, happy is everyone that retaineth her. She's clearly described that way over and over and over, all right? Does that make sense? I'm not saying it works perfectly, but I think it's a far better way to understand it than the way that a lot of people interpret it. But I think that's a personification. Wisdom is... And, uh, Look, look at verse uh, chapter 1, verse 20, just to sh- show you again. Wisdom crieth where? Without, and then look how it describes her. Proverbs 1.20. She uttereth her voice in the streets. She crieth in the chief places of concourse, in the openings of the gates in the city. She uttereth her word, saying... She's described as a woman over, or wisdom is described as a woman over and over and over again. So what would be the most virtuous woman you could find? 
wisdom. Therefore, it's the personification of wisdom as a woman. Right? Now, again, I know 99% of people would disagree with that. That's fine. If you think you can be the, the woman in Proverbs 30, 31, go ahead and go for it. Right? But it just seems like uh, if you take, you put it this way. What is described of the woman in Proverbs 31, where's the passage for the man? I mean, that lays out like all of her duties, does it not? Does that not lay out all of her duties? I mean, they're crazy. Have you ever read Proverbs 31? Where's the man's path? All the man has to do is love his wife as Christ loved the church. That's it, I guess. She has to be submissive. She's supposed to be getting up early. She's supposed to be doing this. 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 She's supposed to be, like, I mean, it's a a list of things. Like, sometimes sit down with Proverbs 31 and write down everything a woman is supposed to do. Okay, it's exhausting. But if you look at all of those things, it sounds like the exact language used in the rest of Proverbs to describe what woman? Wisdom. Wisdom does all of those things. That's just my take. That would be a good example of personification. That would have what? An utterly profound impact on how you interpret it. Oh, you could argue a metaphor. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, put it this way. When you get to this chapter... It's all been about another woman, right? Yeah, yeah, two women, you could argue. Yeah, you got the, the harlot, the adulterous woman, right? And then you have the, the yeah, that's what women are used throughout the book to describe, right? Now, the father shows up as well. Sometimes wisdom is described as the male. But I'm just saying, when you get to Proverbs 31, it just seems weird that all of a sudden you leave this kind of metaphorical personification language and you go to what kind of a language? All of a sudden, now it becomes extremely literal. People take that very literal, what the woman should do, right? So I'm just, I'm just saying that it's something to consider. I, I mean, I, I, we could, when you're going through Jeremiah, look for that personification and see. I think it's all over the place, but you'll, you'll see. All right, we'll have to stop there. Um, the goal today was to get from chapter 3 to 6. And... <laughs> Woohoo! We didn't get anywhere. We're off to a great start in the book of Proverbs. But this, is, this will help you, or Proverbs, the book of Jeremiah. Yeah, yeah. we're going to study Proverbs now. We're just going to detour uh, the book of Jeremiah. But this will help you. So I want, I want to, for those who are reading online the book of Jeremiah, identify all of these types of figurative language. Identify the type. Know what it is. Is it a simile? Is it a metaphor? Is it a personification? Is it an allegory? Is it a parable? Note, note these, because without doing that, you are in grave danger of misinterpreting it. If you don't know the types, you will then misinterpret the types. And guess who doesn't get to determine the type? We don't just get to choose. We, we have to identify it based off what it is, not what we want it to be. All right, well, let's pray. Lord God, we come before you this afternoon. We thank you for the gift of language, but we understand without understanding and being good stewards of that gift, we will misinterpret the very words you have given us. Forgive us when we do that. Help us be better students and more disciplined in learning the proper ways to read your word so that we, are, we better understand it correctly. And we ask this in Jesus' name. God's people said.